evening. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for being on time. Um, yesterday was the opening of Watch This Space. Um, the opening keynote was by Dr. Radhika Kumaraswamy, and it is already up on Ground Views. My name is Anjana Hattatua. I'm the editor of Ground Views and the curator of this exhibition. Um, with apologies for those of you, uh, of you who came last night and had to hear this, the exhibition's aim is actually the whole, uh, the thrust of the exhibition is in a catalogue, so please pick up one. For those of you who have perused the art uh, and looked at the catalogue, I think the intent would be somewhat evident. It was to juxtapose art from conflict outside of Sri Lanka, along with art from Sri Lanka, uh, from artists who have also responded to that conflict that we've been through from our country. And the exhibition is, a, in a sense, an excuse also to have this kind of panel discussion, which will continue for the next four or five days, till the 16th, every single day from 5.30, well, from 5.30 onwards till about 7 o'clock, we'll have a keynote or a panel discussion that will look variously from various perspectives. Today is on media and language. We will have art, theater, and a number of other frames every single day, the details of which are in the catalog as well. Uh, the speakers are carefully selected and they will be offering a variety of perspectives along uh, or anchored to uh, transitional justice. Uh, the intent of all of this is not to have highfalutin, highbrow discussions around this term, but to look at it, interrogate it, critique it in a language that we understand and can engage with as well. All of the uh, discussions will be recorded. Those of the, who have uh, provided me with something written, that content will be translated into Sinhala and Tamil and published online as well. The podcasts uh, will also be published in, uh, online, simply because we've had a fair bit of interest from the diaspora uh, on the discussions that are happening. Uh, and people have lamented that they couldn't be here in person and have asked me to actually record it, and that was something that we were going to do anyway. The final thing in terms of an introduction is that if you take a look at the catalog, in addition to the art and the public discussions and keynotes, there's also another component which is theatre, original theatre by the Floating Space Theatre Company. It's not going to be at the same time as the exhibition. It's going to be two weeks down the line at the Lionel Vent Theatre. But in a sense, the whole uh, the, the theatrical experience is also linked to the themes and the issues and the discussions that, are, that will arise as a consequence of this week's exhibition. So uh, please do uh, keep uh, your eyes peeled for news of the Floating Space production, details of which will be on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot. So they'll also send a flyer. And I hope you join us for uh, that production as well. The panel today uh, will look broadly at media and transitional justice. The panelists uh, who, uh, I mean, I was quite humbled when I invited them. None of them said no, and a few of them actually called me up no, uh, no sooner than a few minutes after sending out the email saying that we would love to be part of the panel. Uh, Dushi, though, uh, said she can't do it, and then I actually explained to her why should she be part of it, uh, and then she said, yes, uh, this does make sense. It helps to read an email before saying no, Dushi. <laughs> Um, but it's actually, uh, so uh, Dushi uh, is from the University of Colombo, the English faculty. Nalaka, I think, is uh, well known uh, amongst at least some of us who is a, a, a frequent uh, commentator uh, on mainstream media as well as uh, social media. 
something that quite defines Nalaka from the rest of us is that he's uh, equally adept at critiquing media in Sinhala and in English. And his uh, columns in the Rave newspaper are somewhat legendary for, for the ability to actually critique uh, that which the English-speaking Colombo circles, in a sense, uh, take for granted in, in a language uh, and opening up that discourse to a far greater uh, readership. So that's something that is very valuable in what Nalaka does. Hisham, a good friend of mine, uh, and we'll talk about this more, uh, is a co-architect, far too humble in my opinion, for his role in architecting something quite unique in this country in terms of a platform uh, that, is, uh, that is still there, that uh, stood up for certain values and principles, and uh, another co-architect of that particular discursive space is also in the audience. I will not embarrass that person by pointing out, pointing out who that person is. But, uh, but, but this is the, the, these are the kind of architects, all three of them, that in a sense I wanted to in involve in a discussion around transitional justice. Far too often for me, transitional justice and these issues are the domain of lawyers. Uh, or, uh, or, or heavy texts, reports that, uh, that don't communicate to me, and I'm an interested person who has a fair grip of the English language. God knows how they are able to communicate that to persons who, who are, not, uh, who are not, uh, you know, not as uh, well-versed in the language or in the ideas as, as persons like myself. Uh, so the, the whole idea was, as in a sense, if you take the panel today, you wouldn't normally associate any one of us with, I suppose, a discussion on transitional justice or the issues that we are going to talk about. Uh, and th that's the idea, so that you bring some different perspectives to what may be, for some of you at least, an issue that's hackneyed. The format will be that the panelists have been asked to, and in fact have been very kind to work with me on as well, brief uh, initial submissions which they will make, after which the some of the guiding questions that are in the catalog as well will be addressed. Uh, there'll be a natural flow, I suppose, of conversation between us. And in the last half an hour, and this is something that is uh, uh, extremely encouraged, uh, we will open it up for uh, a question and answer session and a conversation with the audience. Uh, in Sri Lanka, this rarely ever happens. Uh, so I hope that a few of you will be uh, animated or at least angry enough to ask some questions or challenge some of what is said on the stage. Uh, so with that, um, Nalaka, if you would uh, uh, give us uh, your brief opening statements. Uh, please also tell me when you want the slides. Yeah. So Is it standing by? Uh, it's standing by, okay. but tell me when you want. All right. Thanks, Anjana, and a very good evening. Good to be part of this panel. Um, I'm a hybrid, as Sanjana just uh, mentioned. I have been and continue to be associated with the mainstream media in this country. But for the past decade or so, I have also been experimenting with uh, online digital media. Wouldn't call myself an expert, but I've been blogging, tweeting, and trying to engage uh, a different audience. So I'm speaking from those perspectives as well as this year. I've been involved with the University of Colombo and some of the uh, media industry people uh, in an ongoing assessment that feeds into media sector reform. So media, the mainstream media in particular, trying to take a critical look at itself and trying to identify where it needs to change. Uh, and I think that those insights that I've had are also useful. 
Sanjan had suggested a particular academic paper that came out a couple of years ago, uh, which refers to information ecologies in post-conflict uh, or transitional societies. And uh, when you look at the term information ecology uh, in this country has changed so much, uh, certainly in our lifetimes and certainly uh, du during the, the 25 years or 26 years of the war. Understanding those changes, I think, is key to finding a meaningful way of tapping the media's potential for transitional justice. So that which prevailed uh, in the early 1980s has completely radically changed and continues to change in ways that have baffled policymakers and researchers alike. Uh, but what do we mean by media? Uh, I think it's, it's important to flag that media is literally a plural a plural term, as well as a physically, a very plural and pluralistic phenomenon. So we need to be beware of, uh, we need to be um, wary of generalizations, uh, even when, used, when we use the term media. Simple media diversity in this country has increased leaps and bounds in the last 25, 30 years. But media pluralism, on the other hand, hasn't quite advance as much. The definition that is widely accepted for media pluralism, and I, I wanted to um, uh, cite that, media in a country is considered pluralistic if they are multi-centered and diverse enough to host an informed, uninhibited and inclusive discussion on matters of public interest. So that's the uh, definition of media pluralism. And think for a minute whether the many and varied media outlets that surround us day and night actually nurture that. Do we have informed, uninhibited, and inclusive discussion on our national question, for example, in the media? I'm not so sure. There's plenty of mentions and references, but is it meaningful, informed, an inclusive debate. We can't even, in the media, agree on what our conflict has been. The labels vary from civil war, separatist conflict, terrorist problem, all of the above, or something else, something more complex. Uh, our media uh, is, is uh, divided in many minds over what to call it, as indeed the rest of our society is. I want to, in the limited time available, make uh, three or four points to stir discussion. One is that much, though not all, of the mainstream single and, uh, I understand, the Tamil media have been engaged in nationalistic coverage of the conflict while it lasted, and now look at the post-conflict also as uh, in their own nationalistic ways of looking and, and interpreting. This is due to a number of reasons. One is uh, owners' political views. Uh, interestingly, the last parliament, uh, this, is, this emerged from the study I've been involved in, out of the 225 MBs or members of parliament, six were press barons. Six, we counted, had their own newspaper companies either directly or through family members uh, uh, were owned and controlled by them. Uh, so owners' views, political views come into play in media. The editors and senior journalists, the gatekeepers of content, 
bringing their biases and prejudices into it. Uh, the one of the largest selling single newspapers in this country often says, and I have it on the authority of close colleagues, that uh, he can't write about reconciliation and go back to his local village. In his own words. So those heavy biases come into uh, how media covers or not covers transitional issues. And then there are the market compulsions, the race to the bottom, uh, and trying to, trying to outsell and outdo each other. But that's not the only factor that drives media to take nationalistic positions. It's important to bear that market along with, bear in mind that market along with other factors, uh, condition what content that we get to see and read and hear. So uh, after 25 or 30 years of this, Many people in the mainstream media have forgotten what detached objective reporting and opinion writing is about. And, and likewise, uh, those, those of us who consume mainstream media have also, are also beginning to forget what it used to be once upon a time. Uh, because it hasn't been like that now for a quarter century or more. So media is huge part of the problem. That's the point I wanted to make. Knowingly or not, they are perpetuating that problem. Second point is transforming media's role from warmongering and hate peddling to one of peace making and peace nurturing should be part of a larger institutional reform. It is not going to be successful if we just try to have little oasis of good, feel-good content here and there, surrounded by all the usual polarizing that we see and find in the media on ethnic and religious terms. So for this, we need a number of things to happen. And this is part of the ongoing media reform discussion. Improving self-regulation, for example, uh, for the media through a better press complaints commission, not a state-owned one, but industry-driven one turning state broadcasting and other media like Lake House into true public service media organizations. Enhancing professionalism, which our mainstream media sadly lacks. Uh, and how to do that. So a lot of institutional issues need to be addressed. And uh, if we overlook that and just try to have content that is specifically promoting harmony and reconciliation, it's doomed to fail. And a number of well-meant donor-driven uh, or civil society-driven initiatives have failed for that reason, that it is surrounded by all the, the divisive, hate-filled content, and therefore is just eclipsed. So we need to be re rooted in the political economy of the media and the social reality. So that's the second point. Third point is, with the digital and new media, we have both opportunities and dangers. The opportunities are perhaps better known. Uh, we can be more inclusive and participatory. Once, of course, the initial access barriers are overcome, there can be far more voices than in mainstream media. There is room for debate, experimentation, and innovation. There is uh, also opportunity to counter the worst excesses of mainstream media through the digital media. So that's all the opportunities. The dangers, 
Uh, one that Sanjana has looked at in particular researched is hate speech and the insightful content that is increasingly spreading using digital platforms in this country against particular ethnic or religious groups or now these days we find also simply against political opponents. So that's, that's a great danger. Then there is worse polarization of opinions online and one tends to be just tuning into like-minded and, and ignoring the kind of diversity and pluralism that we'd like to nurture. So in a way, the fragmenting of the audience is, is the other danger. And the shrill factor, I don't want to say anything more, just look at election-related shrill online and, and then you know what I mean. So these are the, the inherent dangers of the beast. So social media is a mixed blessing. How do we, how do we creatively uh, and, and in a sustained way use it for transitional justice, promoting and nurturing transitional justice? I don't have the answer, but I want to raise it as, as, a, as a potential debating point. And then we need to finally bear in mind that, that information ecology is not just media. There is a whole lot of other, way, other sources of information. The education system. During the decade of darkness that we have just ended, I've seen as a parent how history books have been rewritten with venom and hatred distilled and, and sprinkled across them. For example, against uh, ethnic minorities in this country, against colonial powers that were here in the past. Subtle but deliberate mentions of hatred in history books that, that our youngsters are studying. Then there is, uh, as the paper by Price and Stremlau has uh, mentioned, song, sermon, and other mechanisms through which a society also gleans and, and receives information and opinions. So media plays one part in this larger ecosystem of information. So therefore, uh, we shouldn't overrate the, the ability of media to, to turn things around, but certainly media has been part of a problem, a huge part of the problem. It can be in the right hands and in thoughtful minds be part of the, the solution. So I'll, I'll stop there. Is there hope? Yes. That's what I want to uh, uh, just end with. If you look at South African example, emerging from decades of suppression and massive large-scale human rights violations and then trying to grapple with what it means to come to terms with that and how media has been certain media individuals if not institutions have been part of that coming to terms process the cartoonists that I'm very um, a great fan of and following as much as I can is uh, is Jonathan Shapiro who writes or draws as Zapiro and I just want to share two or three of his cartoons that uh, he's drawn in the last 10, 12 years. The, the need for truth and reconciliation and the hype when it turns into disillusionment and all that, what Zapiro with brilliant economy of words has captured and continues to draw 
and i think we need not just in the in the editorializing and the text part of it but also in this sort of media products we need to work on the talent we have gihandi chikera avanta article two names that come to mind but we need more of them from within the mainstream who can be our best hope in fixing the problem that media has been a large part of sanjana may i stop there i'll scroll through the cartoons yes thanks may i stop there this one in particular uh it resonates with me and our situation i think very Thank much you. so uh thanks nalaka um for that submission um dushi you're up next and the reason i wanted uh dushi to uh, speak is uh and the reason i think she initially was quite frightened of being on this panel is it's not so much for the take on media but if we distill one of the key components of media it's language and i am absolutely fascinated in how the politics the uh, uh the selection the framing uh the exclusion of language uh basically uh, defines the content we consume through the media and it's not just that is it in the politics of language also uh lies the politics of transition and the politics of justice so uh i've been uh, very honored to co-teach a masters course at columbia university looking at digital cultures um that i also was had some part in uh creating with dushi and one of the great joys of last year was to sit in on her lectures and understand you know through uh, reflecting through theory some other things that uh, through ground views i had also been endeavoring to do so dushi is on this panel i think to get us all thinking around something that we take for granted and don't always see which is this issue of language and how it plays out dushi thank you thank you sanjana um so as sanjana said let me just add something to um uh, what he said actually and the reason why i agreed um to be on this panel is because language is one of the principal means by which we understand and make meaning of our environment and so i think that's that's one of the reasons why i feel it's particularly pertinent to uh, the discussion this evening and to make language uh, part of uh, uh, a focal point of today's discussion uh, language of course is one of the um, uh, principal mechanisms of ensuring transitional justice Uh, because language use is very important for that and so i'll jump right into what i want to say and start off by uh, reminding us all of the fact that sri lanka is a multilingual country with at least four languages spoken by various communities there may be a couple uh, more languages also spoken but these are the i'm thinking of four principally sinhala tamil english and malay as the principal languages spoken in sri lanka and most if not all multilingual nations have some sort of official language policy uh in place by which the functions and users of the multiple languages of that particular country is defined or stated now in the case of sri lanka our language policy is stated in the constitution in our in the in the country's constitution which is as it should be because a language policy can be defined as what a government does officially through legislation court decisions executive action or other means to determine how languages are used in public contexts to cultivate the language skills needed to meet national priorities 
or to establish the rights of individuals or groups to learn, use, and maintain languages. Okay, so that's a that's a kind of in a nutshell definition of what language policy is. Thus, language planning and policy speak very strongly to the overall theme of this exhibition in terms of framing the past, untying the future. Because looking to the past, we have had some really disastrous language policy decisions um, of which the Singhaloni Act of 1956 stands out as one of the most short-sighted and divisive pieces of linguistic legislation this country has experienced. Now, it has taken us 30 years, or rather it took 30 years from that point, from 1956, for the Tamil language to be given parity of status with Sinhala as an official language of Sri Lanka, which happened in 1987 as part of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Chapter 4, Article 18 of our Constitution now states that Sinhala and Tamil are both official and national languages, while English is termed the link language. Now this I find very interesting because this is a label or status that you don't usually find given to English. I mean we've all heard of English as a second language, we've heard of English as a lingua franca, but I don't think as far as I know that English is termed a link language in the constitution of any other country except ours. So I would like to ask a question, what does this mean, what does this term link language mean in the Sri Lankan context? What is English supposed to link uh, or what, what is it a link for or between? And the constitution, interestingly, is silent on this. If you look at that particular article that I cited, it just says English shall be the link language. So we have to work with assumptions. And given that the 13th Amendment was adopted in 1987, one could assume, albeit in, in the most simplistic terms, that the function of English was seen as linking the two principal communities, that of the singular-speaking and Tamil-speaking communities, who did not speak each other's languages together. Um, now, if this is the case, it points, I think, to at least two other assumptions or beliefs, and that is, first, that the Sinhala and Tamil-speaking communities are so polarized and linguistically distanced from each other that they require a third language to communicate with each other. Secondly, that English should be the language of peace and conflict resolution between two communities, which in 1987 were seen as being divided by a long-standing ethnic conflict. These are just two assumptions that I can think of off the cuff. The problem is this, both assumptions have an underlying common implication which is one of divisiveness or separation. And this I think is something that needs to be addressed or perhaps redressed for the future. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, why do we need a third language to bridge the communicative gap between two that have existed side by side for centuries? Because from a legal perspective, Article 18 of the Constitution provides for the use of both Sinhala and Tamil in all official and public spheres, and thus the labeling of English as a linked language seems to imply that in spite of these assurances, there is still a lack and therefore a necessity for improvement. Now, moving away somewhat from the laws governing language, I would like to focus on the role that language plays as a constructor of and a contributor to identity. In Sri Lanka, we, as we all know, we are very fond of using multiple labels of identification, such as Sinhala, Tamil, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Burger, etc. Notice that two of these labels refer to race and ethnicity as well as language, that is Sinhala and Tamil. Now this is a potent, I, I feel that it's a very potent combination in a nation emer emerging from uh, um, uh, um, an ethnic con conflict and points to what the linguist Joshua Fishman said many years ago, that language is emblematic of self and community. 
I would like to connect this idea to re two recent disturbing reports concerning the national anthem and the national flag of Sri Lanka. President Maitripala Sirisena recently stated, as reported in the media, that there should be no bar on the national anthem being sung in Tamil. Looking to the past, once again, we can assume that this must be a reference or, or, or a decree made in relation to a cabinet paper which was submitted in 2010, which expressly forbade individual citizens, schools and state institutions from singing the national anthem in Tamil. Now, in the interest of peace building and post-war reconciliation, President's, uh, President Sirisena's decree is to be lauded. But the very fact that he had to make this such a statement means that there is resistance towards acknowledging the rights of Tamil-speaking people in Sri Lanka to pledge their allegiance to the country in a language that they identify with and call their own. Incidents related to the national flag are even more disturbing. Uh, the reduction, some have called it the desecration of the flag by removing the orange and green stripes that denote the Tamil and Muslim peoples of Sri Lanka is a removal of a symbolic entity that is closely connected to identity. In other words, it is tantamount to declaring that the Tamil and Muslim communities of Sri Lanka do not exist. And there is no doubt in my mind that this is exactly the message that those who are responsible for the desecration of the flag are trying to communicate to us. Both these developments, the opposition to the singing of the national anthem in Tamil and the removal of the orange and green stripes of the national flag have played out in the public sphere, as you all know. That is, in the media, on public political platforms and in conversations on the street. I was recently asked by a trishaw driver what I thought of the national anthem being sung in Tamil. When I, by the way, this trishaw driver knew that I, I worked at the university and he prefaced his question by saying, you work at the university, you are an intellectual, what do you think? of this. Um, um, when I said that I had absolutely no problems about the singing of the national anthem in, in, in Tamil because it's a language that the Tamil speaking people understand, his response was that no other country in the world uh, has a national anthem in more than one language. Now this is not true. Uh, it is not true. Uh, uh, Canada, for example, not, uh, not only has the national anthem in two languages, they have a bilingual national anthem where there are lines in English and lines followed by lines in French and then lines in English and so on. But that is not the point. The point, I think, is that we don't need to look to any other country or through the rest of the world to decide what is best for us in terms of transitional justice or to argue that something should or should not be done. And for those who say that singing the national anthem in Tamil is unconstitutional, because I've seen that also in the media, that's one of the arguments that is put forward to say that the national anthem should not be sung in Tamil. Well, let me remind you again, the constitution very clearly states that both Singhal and Tamil are national and official languages. So there cannot be any bar to singing the national anthem in Tamil, and I think we could go so far, I'm not a lawyer, but, uh, and I'm not trained in the law, but I think we could go so far as to say that if you stop someone from singing the national anthem in Tamil, that is probably unconstitutional. Uh, finally, uh, you may remember that in 2012, uh, the previous government declared uh, a year of the, the trilingual nation or a year of trilingual something or the other. And I think we are supposed to move towards a decade of trilingual competence. Now, if this is the case and if this is, this is held up to be government policy, that is giving some kind of official status to English as well being the, la the third language in the uh, idea of trilingual. If this is the case, then I think we'll have to think of not a national uh, anthem in singular and a translated version or whatever in Tamil, but we will probably have to go for a trilingual national anthem. Because one of the problems I see, and I'll end with that, and I'm throwing that out to you as the audience, is that the legislature 
or the linguistic legislature is saying one thing, but what is happening and what is playing out in the public sphere and even in private spheres, maybe for example on uh, social media which can be considered to be both public and private, for example Facebook uh, and other types of social media, is something that goes contrary to what the law is saying or what the law states. And I think this is something that we, we really need to address if we are to move forward in terms of uh, some kind of transitional justice, I would say transitional linguistic justice, I don't know if there's such a term, but I just coined it. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm throwing that out there. I think that there's something, there's a lot that needs to be problematized in the situation of uh, language in Sri Lanka. Thank you very much, Dushri. I think that is exactly why I wanted you on this panel. Um, we're just going to power through the, uh, the initial submissions. Uh, um, Hisham and I had a conversation yesterday, and I think that uh, Actually, I've had conversations with almost every single panelist, um, which has been one of the pleasures and joys of being a curator of this exhibition. Um, and uh, it's very interesting to, uh, to have had, had that conversation with him because independent of what I thought of uh, the take on the panel and the exhibition writ large, Hisham himself had come up with ideas that resonated with the raison d'etre of the exhibition as well. And as I said, uh, I don't know how much he will actually... <laughs> Uh, say himself, uh, maybe it'll come up in the questions, but I see Hisham as a, as a, as a, as a fairly important architect of um, a pushback, in a sense, to what has and what was, probably still is, is a dominant narrative uh, that I see uh, has impeded our ability as a country writ large to deal with the hard questions that need to be faced head-on after we, uh, 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 after 2009. Um, and uh, that is why I wanted him to be on this panel, to also share some of that uh, experience, but also to give his take on, uh, on the issues that uh, have framed the panel. So, Hisham. Thank you, Sanjana. Good evening, everyone. Um, I just want to make a quick disclaimer because uh, whatever I speak is going to be on my personal capacity because I also happen to hold a bit of official responsibility related to the Office for National Unity and Reconciliation. So I am not uh, talking anything on behalf of my official office, but I'm just talking on my own behalf. So um, I, when I was going through that email which Sanjana sent about this particular panel and one of the things, f first things came to my mind was transitional justice, like you correctly said. It sounded more like a lawyer's thing and then I'm not a lawyer so I wasn't sure like uh, that I'm in the right panel but then I went through it in detail and I realized what Sanjana would have actually meant through it. But um, also interestingly a week ago or two ago, I think uh, CPA released this uh, report on transitional justice uh, and I happened to go through that and I realized that, uh, that I, I just found something very interesting. It was talking about the, the fact that there are many stakeholders who can lead, support or I have just put a few words on my own to the actual text so that uh, it's made simple and uh, understandable in a, for a layman like me. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, it says, uh, which can, uh, many stakeholders who can lead, support, assist in this process of reconciliation, but the impact, uh, uh, the impact uh, of the collective citizen voice 
is much greater than any of them. That's the crux of it in the forward it had written. And then I was adding on to that, like also it will make all these efforts more sustainable. So it was talking actually about reconciliation or moving forward uh, as a country or as uh, Sri Lankans or as communities or however you look at it, uh, it puts a uh, significant emphasis on the impact which the collective citizen voice can make because uh, in my understanding or interpretation in a sense would be doesn't matter how much of st institutional reforms you bring in, how much of laws you, you would pass or how much of state policy you bring in. Uh, I mean, it makes a difference like, yes, uh, the previous panelists mentioned some of the bold state policies will make a difference, but if you cannot work with the hearts and minds of the people for them to understand that reconciling is the way forward for us as a country or uh, as a communities, I think uh, it's going to be much harder than uh, just uh, relying upon the ones I just mentioned. Then also I was, uh, I was also relating to some of the actual challenges because I also uh, read through the uh, uh, forward to this particular panel discussion and it was also talking about how and the exhibition in general how memories and images uh, uh, play a role in your uh, viewpoints and as well as how it can help or, uh, help uh, create or destroy certain uh, uh, I mean impressions as well as views so that's the kind of uh, understanding I interpretation I got in one sense so then I was looking at issues which might divide us more as uh, in building up a collective citizen voice would be like when you look at uh, accountability, justice, then rights-based approaches, and then you talk about equality. But all these are like uh, very, uh, I mean, e extremely sensitive words in one way, as much as important words in the other way around. So, uh, and also you have like people, the rehabilitation, the disappearances, the displacements, the violence on one side, and the positive stories which emerged even during the uh, military conflict. For, I mean, Nalaka did use, um, I don't know whether it was intentional, he was talking about conflict and post-conflict. I would say military conflict and post-war in my way of getting it. And then, I mean, we had these whole negative uh, memories and images and the stories, yes. Uh, I'm not saying that they are not important. I'll come to that uh, in a second. But also there have been great stories and great uh, examples of how people have uh, gone through or uh, shed out their differences and made humanity shine in ways. And sometimes we all see the darker side more easier, but we don't see the uh, uh, brighter side, but I'm, uh, including uh, I'm just talking for myself. So I was just, I'm not trying to be very philosophical here, Sanjana, but I'm just, uh, when, you, when I saw these words, memories and images, I think some... Uh, one good image can do a huge difference and it depends on what context you take it and the interpretation. I mean, we all know how the famous image of a, a soldier carrying a child in Mullivaikal with the ashes on the behind that image, it has a whole different uh, interpretation based on whom you speak to, what background the person is coming from and how it is. Uh, I mean, you can use it the one way or the other. I'm not here to say what is the right version or the wrong version, but uh, it plays a big role in, I mean, when you look at all these images, that's kind of which just struck me again, like uh, every image has a story and there's two sides of the, two sides of the coin. And then uh, we, we looking forward also, how do we move on? That's the question. Moving on does not mean that you forget everything in a way that uh, if there are injustice is done that they are just left alone but it doesn't also mean that you just 
get, uh, don't get carried away and get stuck on the dark truth or, or, or the, however bitter the truth was and you also find ways to move forward. I think that if we can solve that question, I think as a country we would have gone ages uh, ahead by now. But I was also talking to uh, 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 someone whom I have a lot of respect to and uh, I cannot name him because of the position he holds but uh, 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 at one of the work uh, assignments I handle, so he, uh, he happens to be my superior and I just ran through this idea with him and I was just, I told him, I'm going to quote what you said. He was, it was very important. He was saying like we should learn from the past but not relive uh, in the past itself. Most of the time we get carried away in keeping on reminding, reliving in the past that target, that, but forget to look at the other side of the coin or ways to make it not happen again. Thus, end up on a tit-for-tat mentality and the question is how do we I mean we talk about version, up, version upgrade ourselves, our thought processes and our own, uh, I mean critiques itself, themselves in terms of how do we move on. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because it's just a opening remarks and I know I'm aware of the time factor as well but I'm going to be touching a few areas which I thought might be worth starting a conversation on then if it is of much interest we can take on. Um, I have been, I mean by, uh, I have uh, been following uh, to a greater deal one of these very famous Buddhist monks uh, uh, Venerable Galkande Dhammananda Thero. He is the only disciple of Svalpola Sri Rahula Thero, who is a very respected Buddhist uh, monk uh, uh, of a few decades ago. And Valpola uh, uh, Rahula Institute, run by this Dhammananda Thero, they have been publishing a series of videos around poor days. Uh, and one of the uh, videos he produced, uh, uh, the uh, Venerable Thero produced during Vesak, it was talking about a whole lot of things. I mean, including the national anthem and the language and all. But he was he was he had actually went to uh, went on a trip to the north the north and the border villages which used to exist during the time of the military conflict and then he was making a remark about uh, the 1987 uh, 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 the massacre of 31 buddhist monks in arantalava and if you know uh, i mean if you have he heard or read about it, it was a bloody massacre uh, in literal sense and then uh, one important thing is he puts uh, some photos of, uh, I didn't want to put those photos Sanjan because I thought it, it looks very graphical even though it's supposed to be a memorial which was done uh, during the previous regime uh, to remember and never to forget uh, the massacre, that's how they termed it. But uh, it uh, it's so graphic uh, and it, they have re kind of created every single bit uh, to the point that uh, the mo uh, Reverend Monk asked uh, as Buddhist and as a country which has a, a lot of people, a majority of people saying that they practice Buddhism uh, with uh, kindness and compassion, are we, what do you think, what do you uh, feel when you look at this picture? Is that love and kindness and uh, respect for another uh, being, whatever they did or however the level of uh, uh, injustice you went through or is it about hatred and uh, anger and if you look at it you can google it Vesak message and then you will see that I mean it's such a uh, such moving images in that sense and then I was also trying to relate on to my own I, I, I mean I have seen uh, uh, in for example in Hiroshima where the atom uh, one of the atom bombs went off and you have this peace park and then they have this memorial museum as well 
and I, I was just trying to uh, relate it to the experience I felt. I mean, when I first saw some of the exhibits there, I mean, it was chilling, and you really realized the impact it had made on humanity. But at the same time, all lots of credit to the curators and the people behind it. But it's it's done in such a way that you hate the fact that such uh, violence should not occur for ever but it's not to create hatred among the perpetrators i mean that's important it's a very thin line it's very difficult for you to mention uh, define this is how you do that to the other but i think we have to as a country move if you are to move on i think that thinking process has to come on and also I mean, uh, just uh, on an ending uh, note, uh, the monk was also talking about very interesting. He said, uh, just imagine South Africans. Uh, if the, I mean, it's good that Nalaka brought up the example of South Africa as well. And he was saying, like, uh, if South Af Africans wanted to create uh, uh, places to mem uh, remember and memorials about the injustices of the black people have to go through during the apartheid, just imagine how much of hatred and anger it would have directed rather than the truth and reconciliation which they had to go through. I mean, it's just reflection for us. And then um, I was also relating to, I mean, uh, in our own examples, there were a couple of examples. I was, I mean, one main example is uh, last June, uh, uh, not just uh, the last year, June in Aludgama, when the Aludgama violence, which came in uh, uh, as kind of a, a, the uh, peak of uh, the anti-Muslim and anti-minority in most cases, the violence, and we, we all know what happened. But I was also thinking about uh, what. I mean, there were. I have been part of some discussions where people talk about memorials or how do you live live that memory and how do you also keep that memory so that uh, I mean, some for reasons of like not to forget, not to forget for what is the question? Do you want to not forget so that you will create that anger and hatred further and it'll halt your reconciliation in whatever the way, or do you want to not to forget so that you will never let it happen again? So that's the question. And uh, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things was uh, at the uh, one year commemoration, there were some great moves. Again, these don't come out as often as the darker sides, but there were health camps, blood donation campaigns, rebuilding together initiatives. These, I mean, these are small things, but it can take us a long way. Um, since Sanjan has been telling a lot about the social media part. I'm just going to go into the details of it, but I thought uh, the perfect ending note would also be relating to what the previous two panelists mentioned about uh, how the uh, so mainstream media, the language, and social media itself has been playing a huge role in this whole thing. Uh, I mean, if you see, if we found that uh, social media has played, played a major impact in uh, dividing us or having these divisions coming forward, I think we have an equal responsibility in make, uh, using it for the reconciliation and go, the moving forward part as well. Because uh, I mean, in, uh, I mean I'm, I'm happy to share the experience with how, uh, with my other colleagues, we were organizing uh, the rally, rallies for unities during the height of these efforts and when people were not uh, ready to move onto the streets uh, due to the intimidation and the tacit approval of the state by then. but. Uh, Still, I mean, we found a lot of uh, energy and support because we believed that there was a silent majority of moderates. Again, that's a silent majority of moderates is something which everybody would be very happy to critique, but it again looks depends on the way you interpret it. But I think the, the note I want to uh, 
conclude uh, my uh, remark with is like uh, it's important for us to also i mean when you talk about media and trans transitional justice i think it's important for us to see what media suits the best in terms of the audience i mean if you are looking at the younger generation or uh, the uh, up to the tw the 20s and 30s and the teenagers who have not witnessed some of these and who have not got the time to reflect because of the education system or what the media played or the state policy during the majority part of their life uh, i think it's important for us to engage and enhance on the ways we look at these issues especially on mainstream but most importantly on social media as well so i think i'm going to stop at that sanjana so we can take up anything more sure. uh, if it comes across thank you very thank you very much uh, and uh, so uh, with those opening remarks i thought we'll have a kind of discussion amongst ourselves and then open it up uh, we have about 45 minutes really uh, since we started at uh, at around six o'clock um i want to ask and hisham briefly um you see I grew up in Rathmalana and very close to the Rathmalana airport. In fact, when the large Hercules transports were during the war uh, uh, pressurizing, that turboprop, they make a huge noise. Uh, and uh, those of us in the surrounding vicinity knew that there was going to be a heavy airlift, in a sense, long before the media reported on it. So it's very interesting how media is also not just in the networks that we imagine media to be. Sometimes it's just sound transmitted over vast distances or short distances in this case. Uh, when I was uh, around uh, uh, eight or nine, um, was when the war was hitting a peak, we heard endless streams of ambulances in the night. Uh, and then when they realized that they couldn't afford that sound to be made because that communicated to those on the route of the ambulances that basically shit at the fan in the north and the bodies or the severely wounded were being airlifted back to Colombo, they, 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 they they stopped using the sirens. Uh, but what I want to peg this to the discussion is that uh, I grew up reading the next day in the headlines that the military had scored a major victory. There was absolutely no mention whatsoever around the cost that, in a sense, was audible in the sense, right? It was audible. So you couldn't escape that. Um, and that, in a sense, formed my own skepticism around uh, mainstream media and moreover the critique I have around that which I consume. I wanted to ask a very personal question and it is to briefly reflect around a similar event or process through which each of you, and in a sense three different takes, yeah, three different generations almost, uh, it, that shaped your engagement with the media. It could be through uh, uh, Dushi, your take on language and how it uh, influences or or defines reality in Alaka, it might be, I mean, you've been in the media for a couple of decades. Was there any one point in which you started to, uh, uh, before you started to, to enter the industry, uh, critique the power of it, uh, and in a sense, uh, realize that things were not all, all well and good in the manner that you've submitted? And Hisham, as somebody who actually was an architect of the Rally for Unity, which, for those of you who don't know, was actually a, a social media-based uh, endeavor, largely speaking, that in turn got people to congregate physically. So it's really quite unique in that sense. You know, was, you know, was there a comparable moment through which you realized that this is the way to do it, uh, as opposed to, say, I don't know, taking ads in mainstream media adverts? You know? I hope the question is clear. Yeah? Uh, the, the reason I ask this is I think that we take for granted the, the medias that surround us. 
And if you don't understand that, in my opinion, and you might be open to contestation, you really can't architect critiques and alternatives that support that which we have spoken of as transitional justice or just alternatives to get us talking and debating more. So any, any reflections on that? Uh, Nalaka, we'll start with you. Yeah, that's, that's a good question, uh, Sanjan. I can't pinpoint one, one incident, but over time, uh, when I started working in the media in the late 80s and then into the early 90s, I was increasingly skeptical uh, of how much of, how much of filtering that was happening, uh, intentionally as well as sometimes due to sheer incompetence, uh, so that reality, which ideally, typically media should be reflecting in, in their coverage, uh, was distorted. And this was within the same media group, this was being distorted differently. Uh, for example, in the different language outputs, I'm not saying that the English language uh, media is any better or worse, but it was different from how the single language outlet of the same media group was covering leading events of the day. Not just news reporting, but, but the editorializing and opinion making and so on. Uh, to the point where if one didn't know, if, if a newly arriving reader picked up the, the two newspapers of the same group from the same day and didn't know that these were published from the same house in editorial departments literally sharing the same roof, it would be, you know, incredible. I mean, they wouldn't necessarily believe. So that, again, set me thinking, uh, why is this level of uh, customizing happening? It's not just to get closer to the reader, but there was, there was a certain agenda setting. There was an agenda setting that went beyond, at that time, from um, what I know, the, the ownerships and management's objectives set for the media. So here the media, the editors and the decision makers within the, within the media were determining, okay, how a certain event should be spun for different readerships, singular language readership and an English language readership. And uh, I'm told that similar comparable Spinning happens in Tamil media, though I'm unable to, to do that, uh, read that, um, and grasp it myself. Now, I'm all for diversity, but this is, this is going beyond diversity. This is basically agenda setting, and that has been a long entrenched problem. Yeah. And I'm, I'm aware that it continues. That it endures. Yeah. Dushi, I mean, it's interesting also that Nalaka talked about language. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, first, may I just respond to what Nalaka yeah, exactly. said? Yeah. And uh, this is also ideological. Mm. Um, that, is, that is one of the big problems I think we have here in the media, that the singular print media um, has a particular ideological bent, if you like, which is not always seen in the English media and vice versa. And again, I'm, I have to apologize, I can't speak for the Tamil media because I don't read Tamil, but it's possible that that's, that works there as well. Uh, to go back to your question, Sanjana, about something that I remember in terms of the media, uh, let me also talk 
to a gap because that's what you were saying. You heard something, but the media was not reporting it. And I'd like to go back to the years 1987 to 1989 to a different conflict, not an ethnic conflict, but I'm sure those of you who are as old as I am would remember the conflict. Uh, I was a student at the University of Peradeniya at this time. This was what was known variously as the JVP uprising, the youth uprising, Bishana Yugaya was what it was called. Um, so I was a student at the height of the conflict, and I have a friend in the audience who will attest to uh, what I'm saying because she was with me. Um, we knew a lot of what was happening on campus, uh, the abductions, the disappearances, uh, the constant threat of maybe the army or the police picking us up off the street because that was happening to batchmates of ours. But my parents in Colombo knew nothing of it. So there were we in, in Candy, in Peradeniya, as students, um, somewhat worried and concerned, uh, pretending not to be university students. So we didn't carry files because that would have identified us as university students. Um, and there were certain incidents on campus where, for example, three men were taken away, beaten up, killed, their bodies were found later on. Some of you may remember that 13 heads were found around a pond at the university. We, my friend and I were fortunately not there at that time, but all of this was going on and my parents knew nothing about it because it was not reported in the newspapers. So that speaks to what you were saying, Sanjana. Oh, let me just add one more thing. My mother found out, because my mother is from um, Vattegama, uh, those of you who know Candy would know that to get to Vattigama you have to pass what used to be the Polgola campus, also known as the Dumbara campus. So she was traveling to visit her family and on the way back she saw three bodies outside the campus, which at that time was I think a quite a, quite a, unfortunately a normal sight as it were. And that's when she realized what was happening and I remember the time when she came home and she said, what on earth is going on, why didn't you, why didn't you tell me and you're not going back there again um, because it's too dangerous. So, Hisham? The first point which comes to my mind is, uh, I mean, where I lost faith on mainstream media mm. literally was when Aludgama happened. Yeah, I but if I was trying to, if, because that's some, everybody knows and if we, if most of the audience might be aware of it. And, but if I were to look into something more personal, uh, like your example, Sanjana, uh, this was back in 2006, if my memory serves correct. This was uh, 2005. I mean, today I think Lashman Kadrigama's anniversary comes in. And uh, one week after he was killed, uh, we had uh, the first sitting of the Sri Lankan Youth Parliament, which I was part of with as well. And then we, that is when I, f for the first time, shared a room with somebody from Jaffna and Hambantota and together. It's a whole story. But then a year after, one of the colleagues we had from Jaffna, a young journalist called Nilukshan, uh, he had been gunned down during the military enforced curfew at uh, very close to his own house, home, where, when his parents were also inside. So, uh, and up to date, as far as I know, perpetrators have never been named. But how it made an impact to me was because this was just uh, in the first year of this uh, new kind of exposure I got uh, being very close friends from people and we as a kind of a family of our own we were very close to each other and then uh, Nilukshan I have to say that was not very close I didn't know him extremely personally but I had a lot of respect for him as well as a colleague uh, among other uh, not as much as for example Nirman Shino Guruparan for that matter but uh, all of them were part of this same procedure but uh, one of the things because at, uh, this was I think it was at 2007 because I was the I was uh, 
being made the convener of the Sri Lankan Youth Parliament at that time, and I was trying to make a statement officially on behalf of all of us, 225 or 224 of us, saying that this should, should stop young people and should not be taken for task for expressing as a young journalist what they thought is right. But then I was under tremendous pressure not to do so, not because of anything else, but it would hamper the work of the rest of the activists who are already doing and who are affiliated, because there might be a witch hunt if you associate with this organization. And I, I still remember I, had, I was crying on my own because I, I was thinking, okay, wow, I, could, I was representing a huge voice which is supposed to be national, but I could not make a voice about it, a rep representative voice about it openly, fearing, uh, I mean, what can come back. But what is surprising on the media part is, the next day when you look at papers or TV, nothing of it, unless it is too personal that you, you don't sometimes realize the cost of it. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to uh, give three questions to each, each one of you and then we'll open it up for, uh, to the floor. Um, with Nalaka, I think uh, those of us who have been following this issue, and in particular your writing, the critique of mainstream media is not new. We know the nature of the beast. If we take the 8th of January, irrespective of whatever happens on the 17th, as, a, as an endeavor to revision our dignity, democracy, and, and, and our country, and, and reimagine who we are and what we should be into the future. Given what we know of the mainstream media, I would submit to you that it's absolutely useless to think of them as partners because they're never really going to be fully on board. Then they're always going to be what they have been in broad brushstrokes. Now, given that, do you see, if you agree with me, any constructive ideational role the media can play, the mainstream media can play in particular, in supporting the kind of discourses, the ideas, the debates, the discussions, the content generation that is required around transitional justice, uh, such as you yourself said we have seen in South Africa. With Dushi, when you were speaking, it occurred to me that Language is not some alien artifact that exists in abstract from polity and society and context. And if what you said is taken uh, to be true and at face value, it occurred to me that the language we use is a, symbiot is a symbiosis as well. Who we are is reflected in the language that we use, and the language that we use in turn shapes how we see ourselves. Yeah. And it goes without saying that some of the stuff that is in the Hansard of in recent years is, I, you know, I can't show my son. Yeah, and I made this point on public radio earlier this uh, earlier today. I mean, it's, it's appalling. It's come it's come down. The evisceration of public discourse is almost so complete that we are ashamed to say that these are our public representatives and this is the language that they use. Now, my point to you is, how do we? grasp the power of language as civil society, as academics, as people in this audience interested in, I would imagine, shared goals. How can language be reframed? How can we grasp the power, the potential, uh, 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 and capture it for our ends and very selfishly our purposes, given that uh, the, the, the politics, the problematic of language is, is what, you, what you demonstrated? You know, how do we address that symbiosis? Which is sharp. I think you, again, I, as I suspected you would be, you've been far too humble around uh, what you created uh, from also a very different generation to all of us. 
if, as you said, I think quite correctly, social media is so central in the 18 to 24s, in a sense, who are going to be our country, uh, not just in the future, but who are already uh, the, 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 you know, in a sense, in any election since uh, 2010, the presidential elections on the 26th of January. I mean, political parties also use social media to appeal to them, so they are already a very important part in shaping the politics of this country and certainly the future of it. How would you see, what would be the most important thing that we need to do, in your opinion, to construct social media in a manner that supports transitional justice? So three questions, briefly, and then we'll open it up to the floor. Nalaka? Okay, I have to, I have to agree that mainstream media is, is lagging behind. Uh, it's nowhere near where it should be uh, in terms of opinion shaper and, and uh, opinion leader in society. So that's the very disappointing reality. In the space that opened up on, on January 8th, again, media didn't really play much of a part. The mainstream didn't play much of a part in opening that space. Uh, and isn't really playing uh, a huge role in consolidating that space. Uh, it's in spite of the media, uh, mainstream rather than because of. But, and, and that's an important but, there are honorable exceptions. Every generation has produced, beginning with uh, Taze Vitachi, who did the, the critique of the original race riots of 1958 and wrote a book called Emergency 58, uh, which led to um, his exile. I think he was the first journalist to have to leave the country because of the opinions he expressed uh, in this country. From Tazi to coming on to more recently, people like Victor Ivan who have critiqued both the insurrections of 71 and 89 as well as the, the separatist conflict, there have been exceptions. But unfortunately, even uh, in their own institutions, we don't see enough, enough of the next generation following that shining path that they blazed. So it's, it's a vacuum. And uh, therefore, what can be done or can the mainstream media be turned around? The, the trouble is, yes, they are dinosaurs. Ultimately, they are, they are doomed, but they're going to be around for quite some time. Uh, even historically, dinosaurs didn't die overnight. They took a long time going extinct, and I think the Mediasaurus is also going to be going extinct slowly. While they last, and this has been my pragmatic point in various um, uh, remarks, uh, both in the media and in public forums, while they last, how can we tap their still considerable outreach? They have the eyeballs, and as evidenced by the election campaigns that are now peaking as we speak. Everything has to cease by the end of Friday. Most of the investment is going, despite digital media and social media, into radio, uh, primarily television, and then to print and radio. So the outreach is huge, and that's where the, the large discredited beasts, we have to somehow work with them. We have to find ways uh, and friends and, and champion them to slowly turn things around. We cannot fully ignore. And this is, this is how do we build the dinosaurs 
is is the big question that media reforms I want itself. a large comma to come and wipe them out yeah. actually, <laughs> quite frankly actually Doshi Yes, I'm, I'm going to come at your question from two different yeah. angles. Uh, yes, it is true that the language we use, the language we speak and write is very much a part of who we are and actually I should be saying of who I am because it is, it is, it is a part of your, you as an individual. But I'm going to go a few steps back from there or backwards and ask the question, how did we become who we are? And that was also, in my opinion, created by language. Because going back to what Nalaka said about how history is created in two, is constructed in two different ways, I believe you might have been referring to the Singhala and Tamil textbooks. And that is a fact. It's a fact that the Singhala and the Tamil textbooks used in our school system tell two different stories. The history is different depending on whether you are a Tamil child studying from a Tamil textbook or if you are a Sinhalese child studying from a Sinhalese textbook. So what's going to happen there? Those two children are going to grow up with two different ideas of the history, of one history, but there's going to be two different stories as it were. That story is going to shape who they are and obviously then once they uh, grow up or even in their adolescence or whatever, what they say, what they speak, the ideologies that they express through language is going to reflect that initial inculcation or training or whatever. That's, that's one thing. And I have no idea, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer here. I have no idea how to correct that because you have to go to the textbooks and the textbook writers and, you know, it's, it's a matter of policy and it's a matter also of, uh, I, I don't know what to, what to call it. I mean, this is a matter of, uh, of, pub, of, 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 um, of the country, of the institution institutions that set uh, the, the educational curricula uh, doing this. I have no idea why, so I won't even go there. The second, uh, my second approach to this is uh, all of us, I think, need to be educated, ed need to educate ourselves and inform ourselves of the legislature underlying language use in this country. Um, I'm not entirely sure, I won't throw this out into the audience right now, but I, 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 I would like you to just ask yourselves, how many of you were aware of the status given to Singhala Tamil? and English in this country, the constitutional status. Uh, many people don't know what the constitutional status is. So when they find the constitution being violated, people don't speak up. And I think that's another thing that we have to be aware of. We need to be responsible. There's a certain social responsibility that all of us have. So if you see discrimination occurring, linguistic discrimination occurring, you need to speak up and you need to say, look, this is wrong. You find labeling that is only in Singhala in your officers, for example, say this is wrong. It should not be only in Singhala. It should be in Tamil as well as in English. Uh, that may be one way of making a difference as individuals. Uh, that's about all that I can you know, think of the cough right now. Thank you. Uh, Hisham, briefly? Try to, be, try to be as brief as possible. Um, that question, uh, okay, I'm just reflecting on, because you mentioned uh, when we were organizing these uh, rallies or when we started the first one about two years ago in April, this was just after this uh, candlelit vigil organized by another group on Facebook was attacked and uh, then we thought we should have a rally for unity at the Nelumpokuna roundabout. And I'm just looking at two things which made it successful was it gave us at the time of intimidation and harassment on the social media bullying the, some of the organizers of the candlelit vigil had to go through. Um, uh, we were able to feel comfortable 
with the anonymity which the online world gave us in organizing and at some points we even attracted somewhat proudly that about uh, leaderless movements trying to create panic in some people's words but coming back to the point the second point was also about the way we could use audio visual and multilingual content in creating the interest and also mobilizing people so it was good and we were successful but if you ask me what what were the drawbacks of us like we had about 1200 or 1300 uh, rsvps saying that they let in and we ended up with a crowd of about a little over 500 people and i won't say that each and every one of those 500 were uh, uh, also rsvping on the facebook event page so what so that is the negative side of it i, I recall the current foreign minister at a different forum about a few years ago when we met us the colleague of mine he said this generation is not as active as our generation we have seen I asked him what did he mean by he said that you guys take uh, solace or you, t you guys are comfortable sitting behind a desk and clicking a few times uh, uh, on your computer and thinking that you changed the world. I mean, I, I will just let it be. I'm not going to say whether he was right or wrong, but we did the hard work. So I, I'm not I, I don't agree 100 percent onto it, but I think he has a fair bit of point on that, because if we look at social media alone is not going to take you there however much I have been a proponent of that. So it's, that's the question. I mean, also it's good that Nalika mentioned uh, the mainstream media is there to stay for long. So the point being, I think we, what we can do better is using social media to make, keep it as a check and balance for the mainstream media by generating enough interest and at the same time sourcing mainstream content and sending it across to um, the uh, social. So it's a hybrid, it's never be one way. Um, fantastic. Uh, Kishan, we have two mics, right? You can take mine as well if you want. Okay. Uh, we have two mics. Uh, please feel free to ask questions. Uh, go ahead. There's one in the middle. Um, does anybody ha else have a question? I can get the mic too after. Uh, yeah, uh, Kishan, there's one. Uh, please wait for your turn with the mic. As I said, we're recording it, so it's uh, important that we uh, capture your voice. Please go ahead. Hi, I'm Nehama. Um, I just have a question for all three and um, uh, maybe you all can speak from the different backgrounds. Uh, I'd just like to basically make a comment that uh, given that the cornerstones of transitional justice as uh, presented by the special ra rapporteur uh, are basically on the promotion of truth, justice, reparations and guarantees of non-recurrence, I used to think that there was no comprehensive policy to tackle all four because the special rapporteur also pointed out that you cannot pick and choose and um, that all four go hand in hand. However, now I find, uh, I've noticed in the past years that there has been a misrepresentation of truth and I'm uh, quoting anecdotal um, media uh, that basically referred to the rewritings of the Mahavangsha and other, um, other uh, similar stories. There's been a selectivity of justice, so we see that um, the the case of the Ragarite is getting much media as opposed to the disappearance of a journalist. Um, and uh, 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 reparations, I mean, uh, the media doesn't even cover the, the full gamut of what reparations, um, you know, comprise of. It's not just compensation uh, that is that is, you know, in this element of reparations. 
and actually uh, with regard to the guarantees of non-recurrence there's no mention of it at all so i just like uh, a comment on you know whether there's uh, anything out there that we can take into account on this holistic aspect i'll take i thought we'll take a few questions or maybe two or three and then you know can jot down the points if you want to respond to it we have another one yeah go ahead priyanti yes hello i'm priyanti uh, my question is i i understand all this about the media especially the mainstream media and also reflecting a little bit about what Nehama said in the, her last comments about what the media takes up and what it doesn't. And I think that is um, par for the course with media anyway, anywhere in the world. The kind of um, uh, issues that are taken up by the media is, depends on the media orientation. Uh, but I was just wondering whether we have thought a little bit about how people actually use the media, the audience, from the audience perspective. Because I remember in the 80s, we used to um, laugh about it, but it was really actually how we did it. We, had to re we used to say that if we really wanted to get the right information or to get some kind of balanced information, we had to read four different kinds of papers. Uh, and so I think there is some kind of, I think, to assume that the audience is completely sort of, uh, doesn't have any agency, I think is probably uh, not, not right. I think we also, in this society, we learned how to use the shortcomings of the media in a way that we can, we can actually get better sort of co coverage of the issues that we want to know about. Priyanti, a very quick clarification. Uh, when you, uh, as you said, you did read four papers, was that in uni? No, the I wasn't in uni in No, the question, I, the question I wanted to ask is, uh, do you know of any uh, consumer back in the day that actually bought four newspapers or went yes, to a place I mean, where we, we and you could afford to do it, yeah? No, I mean, we used to buy or we used to read. I yeah. mean, we used to buy and read and you found it yeah. even with people who were riding trishaws. I remember there was the Yuktia, there was the Rave, yeah. there was then the other mainstream papers. I mean, Rave wasn't a broad, uh, broad, uh, broad then, sheet yeah. then, it yeah. was a small paper. And we used to read all those okay. and we used to kind of look at... So we recognized the fact that yeah. the media was biased, yeah. so that a media house was biased. Yeah, fantastic. One more maybe before... You get the panel to respond. Uh, uh, Smithy and then Ian. Ian, uh, Smithy first. I think you raised your hand a microsecond before Ian. Um, so as, as part of mainstream media, I can uh, say I really hope we don't go out the way the dinosaurs did, etc., etc. But um, what I do want to really point out is that I don't think we acknowledge enough the difficulties that journalists face on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it's from starting with the fact that so many of us come into this business incredibly young, without any training, um, that so many of us, even if we have been in, in this business for a long time, are forced to do many things to just stay afloat. Um, and also that there, are no, there is no reward, there is no recognition for doing your, doing your job well. And equally, sometimes there is no punishment for doing it badly. Um, that there is no feedback really sometimes um, and I would like to actually ask Nalika what a, a kind of a, a you know an intervention with younger journalists might look like mm. yeah and if you don't mind I'd like to wait till the next one and these guys have their plates full uh, I have no particular order if 
Dushi, I think maybe you should go first. Yes, uh, if I may address the part of the question that Nehama asked, and that was about why is the, the Ragarites, um, deaths, murder, getting so much publicity and not the journalist. And I, I'm not a media person, but I'm guessing that this boils down to rupees and cents, and it's, it's what sells the papers, and everybody wants to read about the Ragarite. They don't necessarily, when I say everybody, I guess that's a, that's a sweeping generalization, shall we say, most people want to read about the Ragarite. They are not that interested in the journalist. And I think, unfortunately, media houses that need to make money by selling the papers go for that. That's one thing. And the second thing, addressing what Priyanti said, her comment, um, the media is a very heavily mediated medium. So you have to go through, when you are a writer, you have to go through so many mediations before you get your byline in the newspaper. And at each of those points, you can have your article either cut or thrown out altogether. So from the sub to the main editor to even, I'm told, even the layout people. Apparently the layout people say your article is too long, cut it. And usually from the end, not in any other thoughtful way. Uh, Hisham, maybe you go next in, in terms of some comments. I just have a couple of yeah. very quick comments. I think uh, start with what Priyanti was mentioning about reading four papers. I think it's in the current uh, social media age also, I think it's pretty much similar. I mean, how many of us who follow for, let's say, ground views uh, would also follow I'm not, not in any way trying to equate the two, Lanka Sea News, for example, uh, which Vimal Veeravangshir runs, uh, and to get an idea of what's happening, I mean, two different qualities, but I'm just trying to relate. So, I mean, sometimes I think we have this inherent bias within us also. We prefer to read that because that caters to our type of news which we want to see. But, uh, but also, I know uh, my mom used to buy all... Uh, three, uh, I mean, main newspapers, and she would, because she's trilingual as I am, she also bought in three different languages. I mean, affordability, she was, she's a government uh, servant and a teacher, but uh, she thought that it's important for her to be updated about it. So I think that effort pays off well in your worldview in a way. And quickly on the first question on this translational ju uh, justice uh, 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 question, I mean, why does uh, uh, media cover certain things and some uh, not uh, others and some of the more teething problems? I think it's also, I mean, not only in media alone, but even as a whole, commu a whole community or, uh, I mean, citizenry, I think we also, I don't know, it, it's not, I don't think it's too much of a bad generalization if there is something like that exists. Because uh, to say that we Sri Lankans tend to be following a trend or a fashionable thing or something which is, uh, I mean, which is good enough to, uh, I mean, it's consumable for the moment rather than dwell deep into the uh, crux of issues in most cases when it comes to, I mean, news or even uh, uh, following a politician or whatever it is for that matter. I, I don't know how, uh, maybe this is how I see it. Um, it is my personal opinion. So I think it has a lot to do with that. So maybe unless we make these important matters also coming into the main uh, I mean discussions I mean it will always have this in as we single in single as we say kudam mm. yeah. mm. not like a pointed barbs at you yeah yeah I'll, I'll uh, start with uh, Priyanti's uh, remark uh, I agree media biases will always be there that's part of the the uh, diversity and, and pluralism but I think we have here something that goes deeper and further than just uh, 
just uh, everyday biases there is large scale systemic denial of certain certain incidents certain factors uh, there are too many sacred cows as it were at least until recently uh, that no matter government or private uh, print or broadcast no matter who or what media you are you would not uh, touch on and that's not even political i'm not even referring to the the rajapaksha family i mean the sacred cows i can say this are usually dressed in saffron or khaki now very few media would go there no matter what the wrongs are and what the evidence is so there's there's that systemic denial i don't know how to deal with that smriti's point on uh, younger journalists i have had some um, Uh, well limited as it were some experience uh, engaging uh, a group of young journalists working in different media organizations who who band themselves as taruna madhyavedinge sangamaya it's a very loose association of young journalists who are trying to trying to bring media back to its public interest uh, responsibility and they've had a series of public gatherings discussions there was one where i was also on the panel uh, looking at reporting of of uh, sexual violence uh, in the aftermath of uh, vidya's rape and murder and then uh, they've uh, in the last few days they've they've started writing about the army belated report about what happened in ratupaswala where people demanding for clean water were brutally suppressed uh, by the full force of the army a uh, couple of years ago so they are trying to do what they can within the institutional limits of where they work and it's encouraging to see there is that that spirit so i think that's that's our hope not the the generation which which i think is difficult to to engage the the editors and uh, the senior journalists work with the younger ones whether they are print or cartoonists or um, broadcast journalists or freelancers or digital activists go with them uh the other thing is uh, i just want to add to dushi's remark and say that media is a circus today and uh, it is very in many cases not even trying to make money one thing i realized after studying the, the industrial aspects of media is very few of our newspaper groups actually make any profit they don't even break even and it doesn't matter to the owners they are being run for other purposes than commercial viability they are into influence peddling they are into laundering black money uh, and all sorts of secondary purposes so it doesn't matter so even selling more newspapers isn't really the the point anymore apart from one or two large groups which which are hugely profitable everybody else runs at a loss and the owners don't care don't yeah. which to me came as a surprise yeah yeah ian you have uh, first dibs on the question sure Qu- quick one um news media slow to change um education curricula also slow to change is there a better or at least newer vocabulary and narrative in popular media songs films soap operas uh whatever which often runs well ahead of these channels often moves faster and can develop narratives more quickly is there a 
at least a positive trend there, if not in the channels that we're talking about. Um, we have about seven minutes, so any other questions? Any questions? Uh, Kishan, we have one up front here as well. I just have three things that I would like clarified. In terms of, I think, what Priyanti said earlier, I don't um, undermine the agency of the reader or their ability to understand and dissect what the news article is trying to say. But we have to keep in mind, I feel, that um, in the context of Sri Lanka, where a majority of people probably don't have the ability to actually do what needs to be done uh, to get an overall sort of view. And also, in a, in a country where mobile penetration is significantly low, internet penetration is significantly low, uh, we need to, I think, keep in mind that the media are still very much responsible to not be biased or try to not be biased in uh, what they say. Uh, another point, I think what Heshan pointed out, um, with the archiving of history, um, whether we need to highlight the gruesomeness of it all to incite hatred uh, to ensure it doesn't happen again, or just to incite hatred because, you know, uh, it was, it's hatred that we wanted. I think those things are intricately connected because I'm just putting this to you. Don't you feel that if you don't really incite a feeling of hatred for what happened, and you're, I'm looking at things that happened on the scale of a 30-year war in Sri Lanka or Tiananmen Square or um, the Holocaust, you know, if you don't really incite that amount of hatred for what happened, can you prevent it from happening again? I'm, I'm not taking a side here. I'm just putting the question to you. Um, and also, Dr. Dushi, just... Can you make your questions brief because we have limited time, yeah? Sure. So if, if, it, if it can wait, uh, since you asked two questions already, oh, okay, yeah? Sure. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, go ahead. Um, my question is mostly for Nalaka, actually. Uh, just maybe um, spinning off the title of this panel, what is the role of social media in transitional justice? Because, I mean, as a, as a prolific social media user myself, I am getting more and more kind of exhausted and wary of its role in any kind of conversation, any kind of discourse, because it's so self-selective, right? And it's so, you curate your own feeds, you only read what you want to read. So um, if we're talking about larger tran transitional justice um, and kind of this post-conflict discourse, what is the role of social media? And you seem to be very... Uh, discouraged by the role of mainstream media, but I see mainstream media as having a bigger part to play than social media. So moving into the future, um, is it kind of a happy marriage between the two? Um, is one going to die out and then we're just going to have like everybody just thinking only what they want to hear? So what is your opinion on that, I think? Just uh, while they reflect, I'm not sure about the low mobile penetration. Central bank statistics as of, I think, just over two weeks ago, seemed uh, official statistics say that there are 107 mobile phones per 100 people in the country. Every single statistic that comes out from government and from civil society, including agencies like LearnAsia, seems to suggest that the mobile penetration in this country is reaching unprecedented levels and growing, uh, and growing at double digit at least. 
the internet penetration, there's a point of contestation. Uh, official statistics don't take into account that web access is through mobiles and smartphones and tablets now. So that, that is open for debate. But mobile penetration is really astronomical. So, but with that brief clarification, you guys want to end the session? Uh, can I uh, just address, I think, Anandi's second question about uh, hatred? Um, let me just illustrate it with uh, a, a graveyard that I visited, and this goes back to uh, Dr. Radhika Kumaraswamy's uh, keynote yesterday. She was talking about memori memor memorializing. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> 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 okay, that's my language now. I'm losing it. Um, this is a graveyard in a, in a small town in Germany called Arnsberg. And it is a graveyard principally for Polish, um, Polish people who were taken away from a village close to Arnsberg by Hitler's army and then, um, well, basically executed or killed. I don't know how, the, how their bodies were brought back, but some remains were brought back and interred in this uh, cemetery, which is part of a ruined church in the town called Arnsberg. Now, what's really interesting is when you look at the gravestones, and there are these tiny little gravestones laid out in rows in the cemetery, you, you find Pole, you find German, you find Russian, you find, oh, I don't know, you know, various nationalities, maybe Italian, whatever with the name. You also find graves of the unknown soldier. So in German it says, I can't tell you the German, but it says unknown soldier. And what is really interesting is there are also gravestones for the SS. Now, can you even think of a similar situation here in Sri Lanka where the perpetrators of the, I don't know what you call it, crime, would be buried in the same graveyard as the victims. Just a thought, just a thought to put out there because that's the only graveyard where I've, I've seen that. So Hitler's SS with the victims buried in the same plot. Dushi, the, 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 the World War II cemetery in Kandy is interesting in that regard because it makes no distinction as to who the party was. It's just empty tombstones. It's it's not written. Does it does it have labels though? It doesn't. This has labels. Ah, so it says SS. Okay, interesting. So it's very that's clear. Very, that's very different. It has labels, so it's yeah. very clear. So Pole, yeah. Russian, Italian, yeah. whatever, and then SS. Interesting. So it's very clear who it is. Now, like, do you want to take uh, crack at because uh, Hisham has to go pray and come back? So yeah, um, the question. Uh, on exactly what can social media do. I think it's, it's, it's being defined. It's, there's no one clear answer. Different communities, different groups of users are experimenting. It's, it's, it's a huge experiment. Uh, I think we just can't give up uh, because of the limitations of influence or impact we've seen so far in our respective spheres and, and attempts. Uh, I quite agree with you, it's self-selective, and that's why it's important for us to wade into beyond our own tiny self-selected spheres uh, into the larger pools and, and at least see. I know it's a cacophony, it can be overwhelming and tiresome, but we need to keep you know, going wading into this, uh, the larger pool to see what's going on, even if we don't engage or respond. Uh, Happy marriage, I don't think uh, that's going to be quite easy between mainstream and social media. I see social media already and increasingly in the future holding the mainstream more accountable. They can't get away, the mainstream cannot get away so easily with unprofessional and unethical acts of journalism any longer because there is there's always that social media critique. 
likely to follow. So that's, that's not a marriage as such, it's more like social media evolving to be the, the guardian or the conscience of mainstream media. Beyond that, ultimately it will become its own voice, its own uh, dynamics, the social media, um, social media as mediums for information and opinion making and shaping. It's already happened in some societies. In a country with uh, official 16% internet penetration, but believed to be in the, in the early 20s, 22% according to the Internet Society for last year. So somewhere around 20%, 25% of the population of Sri Lanka uses internet regularly. As this rises, there will come a point when it becomes a factor to reckon with. Now what exactly is the percentage, nobody knows. Already it affects and influences more than the direct users. And this is what I keep saying and I think need, we need to bear in mind. There is the direct users and beyond that, there is influence and, and uh, impact. Hisham, final. Take. I think uh, I'll take on Ian's question about that. Quick one on the, I think the qu short answer is arts and culture can make a big difference. Like teledramas and songs we have seen in the past how it has made impact uh, if it's done with the right intention and the, with the right production. So I, I would love to elaborate on it, but in the interest of time. On that question, I think about uh, unless it's as gruesome as it can be and unless it incites the uh, real anger out of the person, how can you make sure that it can be stopped? I mean, that's a very fair question, but uh, I. Uh, if I were to look at it, I would look at answering two points, the how versus why. How it happened, how it was done, how they were killed, how this happened, how they were shelled or how they were massacred, how they were bombed is one way of looking at it. And the other way around is why. Why they were the victims, why it had to be this way or the other, and why is it that they were the 31 monks or the 20, uh, 20 Tamil civilians or hundreds of thousands of other casualties, rather than how, I think when you look at this why part, you might go into better answers in finding ways how you can stop it, rather than sticking to how alone. I think, uh, I again would like to elaborate on it, but uh, I'm, I have to cut short now, yeah. Thank you very much, and with that, we bring a close to our session. There is a there is a, a, a announcement. I suppose I have to make. If you go by the agenda in the catalog, go ahead. Uh, there is uh, listed tomorrow, Professor Jayadev Uyangoda. Uyang will not be making the keynote uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, it's updated on the online version. It'll be Tista Jayatilaka, the head of the Sri Lanka Fulbright Commission, who'll be talking on the same issue, the same topic. And the respondent will be uh, Vangisa Sumanasekar. So that remains unchanged. It won't be Uyang. It will be Tisajaya Tilaka. We start at 5.30, hopefully. Uh, and uh, do please come if you are free and able to do so. Please join me in giving uh, a big hand of appreciation to our panelists. Uh, and the space will be open uh, for about 10 minutes more. Uh, I am also trying to be mindful of the, uh, the help that takes care of the place so that they don't go home too late. So I try to close it uh, on time. So please free to mingle and discuss amongst yourselves. And thanks again very much for coming tonight. Thank you. Mm -hmm.